Well, this morning we continue uh, looking at the words of Jesus uh, to his disciples before he went to the cross. Uh, This section of the Gospel of John known as the Farewell Discourse. And so if you would, uh, I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me or grab your insert in your bulletin and turn uh, to the book of John, chapter 15. You'll remember those of you who were here uh, last week uh, that these men had gathered in uh, a room for, for dinner, and Jesus had washed their feet, giving them just a, a taste, giving them just a glimpse of the extent of his love for them, a love that will take him soon to the cross and to death itself. And then last week, we looked at Jesus' words in John 14, where Jesus promises his disciples peace true peace. Well, as verse 31 of chapter 14 indicates, those last five, six words, rise, let us go from here, Jesus and his disciples now seemingly have gone mobile. They are on the move. They are out of the room that they were in, the room that Jesus washed their feet. It could be that they've settled somewhere else in another room between that room in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will end up. But I'd like to think, particularly because of the content that you're about to hear and we're about to read, that they're walking and that Jesus is is talking to them as they are seeing these things and these images and these pictures made visible before them. And so this morning we focus on John 15 just the first 11 verses. There's a lot we could talk about in this full chapter, uh, but we're just, uh, remember, looking at a few verses from each chapter as we continue this march towards Resurrection Sunday. So if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word out of honor. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. 
As I said, there is a lot that we could focus on in John chapter 15, a lot we could focus on in the first 11 verses of John chapter 15, but there are three things that I want us to look at and meditate on for the next few moments. Three things this passage shows us about the nature of the Son, the work of the Father, and the work of the Spirit in following Jesus' call. We're actually going to spend quite a bit of time on just the first sentence out of Jesus' mouth, verse 1. And the first point is this. Jesus is the vine that we could never be. Jesus is the vine, yes, he says that, but that we could never be. At the heart of this passage is the image of a vine. As I said before, I'd like to think that Jesus and his disciples are walking and and they're seeing the hillside covered with with vines. It's not surprising that Jesus would use this imagery, even if they are in a room somewhere. Around the ancient city of Jerusalem, there would have been many vines to be looked at. It would be the equivalent of Jesus walking around the northwest, talking about how we need to be evergreens, right? We need to let the life of Jesus show even in the winters of our lives. It's a pretty good analogy. Maybe I'll preach that someday. Certainly, this was an agricultural society, and that image made made sense, as as a lot of the images that Jesus used, the wheat and the tares, that was vivid in the people's minds. But there's more to Jesus' use of this image than just what the disciples knew and what they were familiar with. You see, the vine for Israel, for God's chosen people, was a national symbol of sorts. It was a picture of their existence, of their life as a nation, as the chosen ones that the Old Testament prophets had frequently used again and again. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 2 and 3, the Lord says, in that day, or Isaiah says, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it day and night." Prophet Hosea, chapter 10, says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Israel is the vine of God, the vine of Yahweh. But it wasn't just that the vine was an image for the national identity of of Israel, but also the fact that the Old Testament prophets, when they used the image of the vine, the focus was often on the vine's inability to produce fruit. The focus was not on the flourishing of the vine. The focus was on the barrenness of the vine and the judgment that would come As a result, Isaiah chapter 5, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. 
And then Isaiah goes on after this to describe the coming judgment of the Lord as a result of Israel's unfaithfulness, their unfruitfulness. You see, the whole story of the Old Testament, the whole narrative that works its way through all of the Old Testament is that Israel couldn't do it. Israel can't consistently produce fruit. They can't be the faithful, fruitful vine that Yahweh had created them to be and wanted them to be. And so, they need help. They need help. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm chapter 80, if you have your Bibles Psalm chapter 80, Asaph, one of the familiar psalm writers, makes this cry of help needed so well with this imagery. Psalm chapter 80, starting at verse 7, he says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit, the boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. See, Israel had failed in their faithfulness. They had come up wanting in their fruitfulness, and so the Lord had allowed them to be judged. And the psalmist cries out, have mercy on us. And then in verse 17, he says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself, Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. Yes, Israel was God's son. They were the luxurious vine and yet a son of man sent from God's right hand is what they needed and that's exactly what they got. Isaiah 53 verse 2. Speaking of our Lord Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Here it comes. Jesus is the vine that we could never be. You see, it's against against this rich backdrop of Old Testament imagery, of Old Testament history that Jesus declares to his disciples, I am the true vine. In the last of these very divine declarations, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the true vine. What Jesus is saying is, I am the true Israel. I am the fruit that is certain, that is sweet, 
I am the fruit that the Father has longed for, that the Father is indeed pleased with. It's fruit that you never could produce, and yet it's fruit that you desperately need. And so he says to his followers, Jew and Gentile, abide in me. I am what you must have. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is where it all begins. And Jesus says to his disciples in verse 3, he says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. In essence, Jesus says, you already, men, have my lifeblood pulsing through your spiritual veins. Now be assured of your faithfulness before God through me. And what you've got to learn to do is stay there, remain there, abide in me. And this is, this is the call of the gospel that we come and celebrate each week and I hope preach to ourselves each and every day. The gospel is not come and, and get your stuff together and then go to God and make yourself presentable to your creator. No. The gospel is connect to the vine, the fruitful vine who has done all that needed to be done. And through your connection to him, live. Live. Yes, the imagery that we find in John chapter 15, it's somewhat removed from our experience. We don't live in an agricultural society, and yet the need, the heart of the matter is just the same. Jesus is the vine that we could never be. But John and Jesus, of course, don't just present to us the door the door to salvation, but the journey, the pathway to salvation as well. And that's the second truth that I want to focus on this morning from Jesus' words in John 15. Not only is Jesus the vine that we could never be, but the Father is the gardener that we desperately need. The Father is the gardener that we desperately need. It's that time of year, isn't it? Or it's getting to be. We're starting to smell it. We're starting to, to hear it. Some of us are starting to, to sneeze it, right? Spring is around the corner. And one of the things I'm looking forward to this spring at my house is to seeing how well our rhododendron bushes bloom. We have uh, this house that we bought, I guess, a year and a half ago. Uh, we have 14 rhododendron bushes in our yard. And when we looked at the house, strategically, they were just exploding in bloom. They were exploding in color. But then, last year, my inexperienced hands and pruners got to them, and last spring was, was underwhelming, to say the least. Where did all these blooms go? I need help, pruners. I need help. I need help to bring about the full glory that I know these rhododendrons possess. I've seen it. 
And in Jesus' imagery of the vine and the fruitfulness of the vine and about his people being the branches, he tells us something very powerful about the heart of God the Father. The Father, he says, is the vine dresser. He is the the master gardener. He is out for fruit. He is out for maximum maximum glory, maximum fruitfulness. And to accomplish that, he does at least three things. He lifts, he prunes, and he casts out. Now let me explain and walk through those things for a moment. The first action is described in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, I'm not a Greek expert, so I want to be, be careful here. I have studied Greek, but I don't like the way that this phrase has been translated. Specifically, one Greek word in your Bibles translated as takes away. And just so you know, I'm not completely out on a limb. There are other, other scholars who believe this as well. But I find it odd that Jesus, in talking positively to his friends, begins talking negatively about branches that must be taken away. I mean, sure, he's going to get to the dead wood, and we'll get to the dead wood in verse 6, those branches that are not connected to the vine, that need to be thrown in the fire. But is that what he's talking about in verse 2? After all, these are branches in verse 2. Look at with me there. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. In me. These are not branches that are disconnected from the vine. Well, come to find out that the Greek word that's translated take away in your Bibles can also be translated, as it is in other places, as lift up, hoist up. And I think that's the picture of the Father that Jesus gives us right out of the gate It's that those who are struggling to be fruitful, those who are languishing on the ground, the Father tenderly lifts up and hoists up. Right? Grapevines need to be lifted up. They need to be hoisted. They're not fruitful on the ground. These are not pumpkins. And this... I think, is a picture of the, of the tender grace of our good Father. Those who are in Christ are never lopped off. Rather, they are gracefully, strategically lifted up and put in a place where they can thrive. Isn't that a great picture? The Father is the gardener that we desperately need. You feel like you're on the ground. <laughs> Let the Father lift you up. Well, the second thing that the Father does, this master gardener, the second grace that comes is not only the grace of tenderly lifting up, but the grace of pruning. Ouch. Of cutting away that which isn't helpful in our lives. I remember as a young father Years ago, we had in our house uh, some, some kids who 
love those pacifiers, right? So we had some thumb suckers, but we also had some passy suckers. And you young parents or old parents, you know the passy sucker deal. And I remember having to do some, some fatherly pruning. This is what came to my mind as I was thinking about this role of the master gardener, of our good father. Because there, of course, comes a time when the passies must go for the sake of the development of the mouth and the teeth. The passies must go. And so I remember taking scissors and taking that passy and just snipping off the tip. Just snipping off the tip of every passy that I found. And I still remember one of them who will remain nameless, though he's sitting in the back. I remember him <laughs> popping it in. I remember him popping it in and sucking on it and taking it out and looking at it, popping it in again, taking it out, and then just throwing it away and walking away because it didn't work. He didn't find any pleasure or any satisfaction in them anymore. It was it confusing? Absolutely it was confusing. Was it disappointing? Absolutely he was disappointed. But it worked. That's kind of a silly illustration. But it gets us to the point that the good gardener, our good father, is in the business of doing what is necessary for his glory and for our fruit and for our good. And the pruning of the father hurts. It hurts. It's often confusing. But it's the Lord's work. Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71, the psalmist expresses this well. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. See, we only can confess those words with the psalmist if we really believe that the Father is the gardener that we desperately need. If we believe that His heart, as we sang earlier, that His heart is kind and that He's out for our good. James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The writer of the Hebrews says that sometimes this pruning is called discipline. Hebrews 12, 7 and 11, it is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Some of you may have known this pruning. Some of you may have be experiencing this pruning now, don't forget that the Father is the gardener that you need. Don't forget that He is out for your good. Well, the last function that the gardener gives in this passage is dealing with the deadwood. Dealing with the deadwood. For those branches that don't have the life of Christ flowing through their veins, who haven't repented and placed their faith in the true vine. They're not only on the ground, 
but there's no life. There's no connection. There's no fruit. And the branches must be destroyed. The Apostle Paul speaks of this with the imagery of an olive tree in Romans chapter 11. He speaks of the Gentiles being grafted into the family of God, a thing that the Jews struggled with, many of them. And he says, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Yes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God without Jesus. But in Him, you stand fast through faith. You stand fast through faith. And so the call this morning is to acknowledge Jesus as the true vine, to acknowledge your need for that vine, to accept the pruning of the good Father, and then finally, the last point, the last truth for this morning is abide in Jesus for a fruitful life. Abide in Jesus for a fruitful life. Abide is the central command of this passage. Remain is what some of your translations say. It's used eight times in seven verses. Abiding or remaining is the only path to fruitfulness. And that's the goal. Don't miss that that is the goal. Fruit, lives of fruit for the glory of God and for our good. God expects it. And we would say it's inevitable for those who are rightly connected to the vine that fruit is an inevitable outgrowth from that connection and from that life pulsing through them. And so our lives, Christian, brother and sister, our lives are to be lives that are filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. Our lives, as Jesus will say in verse 12, are to be characterized by love for one another. And our lives are to be full of joy. And we've talked about all of those things in different places. But let's talk a little bit about abiding. How do we get there? What does this look like? Abide in my love, Jesus says. Abide in me. Let me first say that learning to do this is a process. It, it takes time. It takes time to learn to abide. But this is an invitation from Jesus to enter into the very life of God. To experience through the Holy Spirit who resides in all of those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus. To through the Holy Spirit to experience the love and the joy of God the Father and God the Son. Jesus is talking about a union. He's talking about an unbroken fellowship with himself that is alive. Of course, this is at the very heart of the Christian faith and what it means to follow Jesus. A couple things concerning abiding. First of all, abiding means resting. Abiding means resting. 
We started here, but it's worth repeating because this is foundational. The nature of the union is that it flows in one direction. The branches don't feed the vine. They don't flow to the vine. Rather, all that the true vine possesses flows to the branches. And if you are in Christ, you are clean, as he says to the disciples. He said the same thing to Peter when Peter wanted him to wash his whole body after washing the disciples' feet. And he says, Peter, you don't need a body washing. You are already clean. And so abiding is believing that Jesus is the true vine. But then it's clear from Jesus' words that abiding is more than just resting. Do this, he says. It's a command. Do this. Abide. Remain. There's a helpful analogy that I've read from more than one author. A helpful analogy for abiding is to think about abiding as sailing. There's a great book. Someone was just talking to me about it recently by Rankin Wilborn called Union with Christ. It's a wonderful book on this subject and and our, and our union, practical book about our union with Christ. I think I've quoted him before, but he says, life with God is not like a motorboat where we are in control of the power and the direction, but neither is it like a raft where we just sit back and are carried along. It's like sailing. While we can't control the most important thing, the wind that makes us move, that doesn't mean there's nothing left for us to do. We have to draw the sail to catch the wind. We must labor to be brought near. And sometimes we who exalt grace, we, what, labor? Ooh, we don't like that word. No, we need that word. John Calvin said, let us labor more to feel Christ living in us. And so you see, abiding is work. Not work in terms of of drudgery, not work in terms of getting your stuff together, not work in terms of making yourself clean before God, but work in regards to intentionality, work in regards to preparation, Work in regards to every morning, starting your day, reorienting your mind and your heart to the things of the Lord. And as I thought about, boy, this is like 15 sermons here that I'm going to pack into the next 10 minutes. But as I thought about how to unpack this a little bit, I, I thought about our discipleship hour, those of you who have been here in the adult discipleship hour. And a lot of this has had overlap in our youth and in our kids' discipleship hours as well. But what have been the areas that we have been studying? These three foundational areas of our Christian life, spiritual discipline, spiritual gifts, and soon to be spiritual warfare. We haven't gone there, so we'll spend just a little time on that. But how about spiritual disciplines? Abiding is listening. Abiding is listening, and all the spiritual disciplines that we looked at and studied, it's all wrapped up in there. Verse 7, if my words abide in you, right, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The psalmist declares in Psalm 1, you need to plant yourself by the stream of the living water that is the word. Worship, word, sacrament. Abiding means 
listening to all that, soaking all of that life of Christ into your lives. You're here this morning, and that's, that's wonderful. But what happens when you go from this place? What, what do you carry out in your heart and in your mind? What fills your home in the grind of schedules, in the urgency of, of life? As you make your home in Christ, His Word must make its home in you. Listening to the preached Word, yes, you're doing that. But beyond that, chewing on it. Reading the Word at home, yes, but not just reading, memorizing it, meditating upon it. And with both of these things, obedience, doing what it says. Abiding is listening to the Word of Christ. Jesus says to the one who lives like this, prayer becomes more than just a show of dependence, although that's a necessary thing to show our dependence upon our Maker. But verse 7 says, prayer becomes real power. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, this is not you just got to have enough faith kind of power. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is, I know you and you know me. I know your heart and you know my heart. It's that kind of power. And a way to think about it, it's like me giving my wife Anna power of attorney over my life. Over whatever assets I have, over whatever medical decisions need to be made on my behalf. That's not a risky thing for me to do. Because she knows me. She's been listening to me for years. She knows how I think. She knows what I desire. She knows what I believe in. And in the same way, in Jesus' absence from earth, he puts in our hands the promises and the power to accomplish his purposes because we have listened to him and because we abide in him and we're remaining in him. And so then we can ask and he will give because of this vital union between us. He'll speak further of this in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. Well, we could talk more about that, but, but let's move on to the second trimester of our class. We just ended it. Spiritual gifts. Abiding is about loving one another. Abiding is about loving one another. Abiding in Christ means abiding in His body. It means loving His body. And this means not allowing yourselves to remain distant from one another. To Colossians 3, 16, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another daily. And I recognize, I'm fully aware that we all in this room, we each have only a certain amount of bandwidth that we can give relationally. We've got family in town, we've got neighbors, we've got coworkers. But I want to challenge you, how many of these people 
in this room do you really know? How many of them have sat around your dinner table at some point in the last five years? The Christ in each of us is beautiful, it's powerful, and it's worth investing in. And so abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, involves abiding in the body and loving the body. The last part is spiritual warfare. We haven't gone there yet. I hope you'll come the week after Easter. But I think this pertains to abiding is having your eyes open to what you can't see. Abiding in Christ is having your eyes open to what you cannot see. We're going to spend a lot of time on this in the coming weeks, but suffice it to say, and I've said this before, it's my new favorite word, we live in an enchanted world. We live in a world of enchantment. Yes, the spirit of power resides in you who are in Christ. He resides in this place. But as you abide in Christ's love and in His Word, that Spirit guides your steps. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So abiding in Christ is recognizing what we can't see. It's not just what we can't see inside of us, but it's what we can't see in this world, a world filled with evil, with the evil spirit that is out to destroy, that is out to devour. Do we really believe that? Do we ever think about it? Do we ever pray against it? Abiding requires that we do. Abide in Jesus through fruitful life. Three vital words as we close. Believe, trust, and abide. Believe that Jesus is the true vine. Trust that your Father is the good gardener, no matter what kind of pruning you're experiencing, and abide in Jesus by listening, by obeying, by loving, and by being aware of what you can't see. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus' words this morning to us, his people. We thank you for the rich imagery that these words give to us as your people. Those who need must be vitally connected to our Savior. Oh, Father, I pray that you would now take this word and that you would do your work in your people, producing that good fruit which we can't produce on our own, but by the power of your Spirit, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can bring you honor and bring you glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.